Hi, I'm Warren Davies, the Unbreakable Farmer, and welcome to the Beyond the Back Paddock podcast, where I have the privilege to be joined by some amazing people I get to meet in my travels and share their stories and wisdom with you. After all, one of the most powerful assets of any community is the shared wisdom, and the best way to share that wisdom is through storytelling. So sit back and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome back. Um, if you've checked out the socials of today's guest, the first thing you'll notice is her bubbly personality and her and her infectious um, delivery. Um, she's got she's full of energy. She's a winner of a mu- of numerous awards and um, with a career spending spanning nearly two decades, um, she is driven to create social change in rural areas, inspired by her journey as a carer for her dad. She's a speaker, facilitator, consultant, and the chief planter of seeds at the Plant for Seed for Safety. So please welcome to today's podcast, Alex Thomas. G'day, Alex. How are you? G'day, Warren. I'm really well, thanks, mate. How are you? Yeah, very good. Um, thanks for coming on and having a chat. It'll be um, interesting to, to unpack your journey a little bit and find out a little bit more about you. Awesome. I'm excited. <laughs> So um, tell me a little bit about your story and, um, you know, probably you can go back as far as you want, but just tell us a little bit about about Alex and, and, and how you've got to where you are today. Oh, man, how long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> the, clock's, oh. the clock's ticking. <laughs> I'll, try and, I'll try and keep it short, sharp and shiny. So, I mean, for those who um, perhaps don't know me so well, I – Grew up on a sheep station in the northeast pasture of South Australia in a notoriously dry part of the world, um, north of Gordes Line or just northeast of Gordes Line, actually. Um, and for those that are not based in South Australia, basically what that means is anything north of that line is pasture and anything south of that line is, is cropping. And um, I had the great fortune of being born into this environment where I spent just about every day covered from head to toe in dirt and with holes in my jeans and not a worry in the world. You know, I think my biggest concern was, I don't know, something to do with a horse or who, who knows, but it was just amazing. I grew up on the back of a horse or in the back of the ute or in the back of a motorbike and generally just sort of being my old man's shadow and um, did school of the air until I, was, uh, until I went to boarding school um horribly my horrible parents were in morning school when I was about 12 but you know aside from that really lived the dream and um and you know despite the fact that some years later and I'll get to this I we didn't we ended up having to sell the station that lifestyle and that start was is just etched all throughout every inch of my identity and I obviously carry that through my my work with Planacy for Safety as well but look my old man um came from a a sort of very sort of conservative, um, wealthy farming area, uh, sort of south of Gordes Line. And, you know, in the late 70s, there was a decision to sort of get big or get out. And so they expanded to a station, um, Parnarood, which is north of Gordes Line, which is obviously where I grew up. Um, and by the time I was born, my old man had been through the drought of 82, um, diversified the family business to include the mustering of sale and sale of feral goats. Um, 
and he caught Q fever during that process, which unbeknownst to him at the time just wreaked havoc with his organs um, and left a lot of irreparable but invisible damage, I suppose, on his on his health. And so, you know, throw in the, the drought of the 90s, the precarious position and, and smaller size of the station um, on top of, you know, later getting diabetes, heart failure, kidney failure, mum leaving, um, and just the stress, like the stress of having to put food on the yeah. table and having um, like the bank chase you and, and all of that sort of stuff. It was not terribly surprising that he ended up permanently disabled at the age of 56. So I've been caring for dad in um, lots of different ways since I was around 15 years old. And, you know, coupled with the fact that I'm a, um, a fairly empathetic kind of character, um, you know, and then also the juxtaposition of kind of being thrown into work, health and safety and mining in the early 2000s, it's all just kind of collectively transpired into this amazing career as, you know, as two things really. One, as a work health and safety professional, um, working with predominantly either big groups of farmers or medium to large size businesses, and the other with this huge, big, hairy, audacious goal to, you know, keep health and safety front of mind and prevent people um, from ending up in, in the state that my old man has. Now, the good news around all of that is that fortunately he's still alive. Uh, none of us really quite know how, um, and he's on dialysis, which is a four-letter word of a thing, but he's still here. Um, and, you know, he's gifted in a way, his misfortune has gifted me with this incredible opportunity to try and um, reshape the narrative and, you know, obviously help people come home safely at the end of each day. So all those those issues that your, your dad went through, was that all caused from the Q fever or was that just... Um, you know, as a, you know, on an ongoing thing from Q fever or was it um, something, you know, totally, you know, genetic or something totally yeah. um, removed from that? It's a great question. I think, you know, like the sense-making part of us would love to be able to go finitely that Q fever was the underpinning cause of everything, but I think it's far more nuanced than that. And I think it's a, it's the compounding effect of Q fever, Ross River and all of those other things plus the stress um, yeah. over the, and the burnout and and probably just, you know, doing what so many blokes of particularly of that era do and they just kind of turn off their internal voice that says slow down, take a break, you know, like invest in having some time off because that pursuit for putting food on the table is, you know, survival, I guess. Um, so it's not, I, I want to be really clear here, it's not, dad's fault that this stuff happened to him and I think he carries um quite a bit of guilt and perhaps even shame I don't know I can't speak on his behalf um but you know particularly for that era being tough as nails it's been a hell of a journey for him but yeah as I said he's he's still here so that's amazing yeah and I can I can empathize with that as well because that's kind of similar to my journey as well and um you know i i talk about in my presentations about you know struggling with your mental health and then you know trying to outsmart my my silent business partner mother nature and and working harder and getting up earlier every morning and and working you know harder and harder to try and you know outwork or outsmart something that you had no control over and i i, I explain it it's a bit like you know couple that with you know sleep deprivation and all that with a with a um 
a mental health condition or any sort of condition. It's like tipping petrol on a campfire and eventually it explodes in your face. Like it's, it's, um, yeah. And it's just that I don't know what it is, um, with us blokes, but it's not just blokes too. I noticed that with lots of women in rural communities as well, where the, you just pick yourself up and you get on with it. And, you know, when I talk about, resilient sometimes it's yeah just lack of other options and you've got no other choice but to get up and keep going and that's and that can be really detrimental to your health like it was for your dad yeah that's it I think um with today you know we've kind of got the fortune of having access to so much information that says actually your head and your body aren't two separate beings (laughs) we're one the same and they all talk to each other so we can't talk about mental health and physical health exclusively without there being, you know, really clear link, even if it's not really well understood. Um, and I think that whole pick yourself up and get on with it is, I mean, our country was, oh, now I'm going to have to take that back. I mean, it's a lot of the, um, how the development of Australia in a white privileged sense um, came from that mentality, I suppose is what I'd like to say. So, yeah, rightly or wrongly, obviously, but it, um, I think that's in our DNA, unfortunately. I understand where you're coming from there, but, you know, like that, that old saying that the country was built on the back of sheep's backs type of thing, that that, yeah. that mentality was, you know, you just got to keep going and you've got to, you know, and it's, yeah, it's not, it wasn't a cool thing not to be tough and, you know, and, right. and I think those environments built those tough people, but, you know, I talk to people like you would too and it doesn't matter what age they are, they you know, some of them go, well, your your story's resonated with me because that's just, that's what I went through. But I'll, you know, yeah, I had a bloke come up to me one day and just say, like, there was no bloody no bloody way I was getting up in front of the crowd, and because I always talk about thumbs up and thumbs down, and he was challenged by my presentation, and he goes, there's no way I was standing up in front of, you know, 800 people and putting me thumb down and walking out of the room because I'm the best bloody farmer in the district, and I would have thought I was a weak bastard type of thing, and that's that's that kind of mentality and like he was middle 70s you know um age bloke that was at this conference and and that's that that's that real tough kind of um you know exterior but there was they were still facing the same challenges they just didn't talk about them as much as what we do today even though we've got a lot of work to go um um with that so how did that affect um with your dad how did that affect your journey Mm, it's a great question. I'm so used to talking about my old man. It's um, yeah, it's an interesting one. Like I think having had the benefit of having you know really quite a sheltered childhood, and then at 15, you know, coming home um, on an exit from boarding school, none the wiser, and then you know having mum come in and say, you know, quite abruptly, we're over, um, and then watching dad cry, like. It almost makes me cry still today. Like it just, honestly, it turned my world upside down. And it's it's a lot for a 15-year-old kid to take on, you know, on top of selling the station at the, around the same time and obviously being a long way from home. So I probably, you know, what am I now, 36? So that was um, a long time ago now. But I think only it's only been thanks to, seeing someone rain, hail or shine and talking and downloading every two weeks without fail, like it's a rhythm now and it's a habit, 
it's only been the last probably six years that I've really started to unpick a lot of that. Um, and I'm not sorry that it all happened because it's all, and I hate to say this, it's kind of weird, but it's, it's all character building stuff, right? <laughs> and yep. it led me to where I am today, but it certainly hasn't been without its trials and tribulations. And um, look, I'll be completely candid with you. Like there's been some pretty dark, depressing times in there and I've, um, you know, taken antidepressants and I've done all of that. Um, but it, by far the best remedy for me has been to talk to someone and make a real habit of it. So. Yeah, yeah, and that, and when you talk about character, you know, one of those typical conversation starters, or you know, something that's threaded into a conversation when you're talking to a to farmer, a farmer going through challenges. It's oh, it's character building, but you know, sometimes you think, how much bloody character do I need here? Because it's um, yeah. you know, I've got enough of that. I don't need any more. I can give you some if you want some because I don't need any more building. <laughs> and that's, you know, also like even listening to myself say that it's character building stuff. It's me trying to shift away from the discomfort of going, actually, that was just really hard. Yeah. <laughs> so I think yeah, that's just one of the funny nuances about human beings, isn't it? We try to alleviate pain wherever we can. And if you, yeah, it's d- sometimes it's, um, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, just thing. just deflecting, trying to deflect that pain yeah. because it is a it is a challenging time, and I know, um, you know, going through droughts and obviously different to your dad, but you know, uh, a health challenge, which was a mental health challenge for me, you know, going through though that, you know, the drought and and the stress and the and all that sort of stuff that was um was going on was it was really tough and. Um, it, it is challenging times, and it is character building. Because, and and same as you, I wouldn't change anything because I wouldn't be here mm. talking to you today if it wasn't um, for what I've been, you know, what I went through. So it was really important that um, you know there was a reason why I went through that, and hopefully um, that's where, where my purpose lies now. So um, going on from that, so once. Um, so they sold the the station. You were still at boarding school, and what happened from there on? Yeah, so um, not unsurprisingly, like I finished school um, and was just so terribly homesick. So I did much to my parents' disgust. I went and found a job as a station hand on the closest neighbouring station to where I grew up, and I went and ran a market as station hand for. 12 months and did some contract mustering and just really reconnected with some kind of sense of place, I guess. Um, or, or, and, you know, spent a long time, I guess, trying to reconfigure who I was and what I identified with if I didn't have the station anymore. Um, and that was fun. It was, it was reckless. Like I was probably drinking way too much, as is the bush thing, I suppose, um, ca- you know, obviously catalyzed as well with what I was going through at the time. Uh, and then I just, I dad had already sort of shifted into the mining arena. So, you know, I was given the ultimatum of either go to university or get a good job in mining because you can't live on 18 grand a year. <laughs> so um, followed dad up to a mine in, in northern South Australia and, you know, it was give- there were two entry-level jobs for women in mining at that stage, it was a tough place to be, but there, one was either in admin and the other was in safety. And I remember thinking, well, health and safety, and I remember thinking to myself, you know, why wouldn't someone want to make a living out of, you know, stopping people from getting hurt? 
Um, but the reality of what work health and safety looked like, particularly then, um, you know, was was in direct contrast to what my career looks like now. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting. There's some interesting, yeah, stuff in that for sure. So before we pick up on that point, I just wanted to go back a little bit. And you, you talked a little bit about identity. <clears throat> it's something that I talk <laughs> about, you know, the loss of identity when I lost my farm. So what did that change of identity or that loss of, you know, what you grew up with, what 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 did that feel like for you? Mm, very confusing. Um, I didn't really know which way was up or which way was down for a long time. I think I became, I used to coin myself a sophisticated wanderer because I think I ended up living in 17 different places over the course of, I don't know, 10 or 10 years or something like that. Um, I just, I mean, and part of that was through the, the, the desire to explore, but I just couldn't, I could not find somewhere that I really, truly, that felt like home. Um, and I know you will understand this. And I read a really fascinating article about this years ago and the sense of displacement that comes after you leave a place like that, which, you know, really brings into question not question, but really sort of acknowledges, I guess, how First Nations people feel, let's be honest. But um, it's, yeah, I really struggled with that and I still sometimes do. And it was kind of interesting with the Rural Women's Award, I had someone unrelated to the award come up to me and say, well, and I was living in Adelaide at the time, and they said, well, you can't be a Rural Woman of the Year because you don't live on the land. And I was like, and, and media outlets some of them didn't want to engage me in articles or they'd get halfway through the article and go, but you're on a farm, right? And I'm like, because it it really got to the core of this whole piece around, you know, um, not knowing where I belonged or what my identity was after leaving the land. But lucky, time heals a lot of wounds and, you know, I've got my own family now and um, and I've learnt that, you know, that will never leave me. It's still in there. It's still part of who I am and... um, and I, I love that. I cherish that. And I certainly relive that a lot in talking to Dad because I know that that's obviously a big part of who he is as well. Well, it's, it's very interesting because um, one of the TV networks in Australia created a whole series about Farmer Wants a Wife and most of those blokes aren't farmers either. So, um, you know, that you don't need necessarily need to be a farmer to be, yeah. But like, I really, I really um, resonate with that like that, you know, I'll never not be a farmer, um, even though I'm working in the space and, you know, rural communities and that, but I'll always be a farmer from now on because it's just ingrained. It's just ingrained into you and it's something that will never, yeah, will never leave you. And it's a, it's a, it's a <laughs> sometimes it can be a, like a form of illness itself, um, attaching mm. yourself to, to be wanting, wanting to be a farmer because it's not the, um, you know, sometimes you need to get away from that as well, but. So where did, you know, so you said you moved to a mine, um, health and safety became your thing. So how did that evolve into what you do today and explain a little bit about what you do today? Mm. Um, So basically I was in mining, oil and gas construction and stuff like that for a fairly long time actually, a number of years, learnt all the wrong things to do, to be completely honest, Um, became very heavily institutionalised into the land of box ticking because as a naive young whippersnapper, I just, I really wanted to do a good job and impress my boss and 
compliance was, you know, at the core of what work health and safety meant in that environment uh, and, and what it still means in a lot of environments. And so, um, you know, by great fortune, you know, I was working alongside my old man who kind of um, became my litmus test, I suppose. You know, like I was watching how he was responding to this environment and the really stupid requests of some of these companies to just tick more boxes in the name of safety, but it was having absolutely no impact whatsoever on safety. In fact, it was detracting from it. So I thought there's a huge disconnect here. And, you know, always had this long-term view of um, supporting people in agriculture in this space, but going, well, no wonder this doesn't fly. Like it's, it's completely irrelevant. Like people just don't see value in it because they think it's all about paperwork. So, um, you know, once I'd sort of beat my head against a brick wall for a long time in that space and spent some time with some really interesting people in psychology and sociology and fishing and um, and then, you know, leaning more into working alongside small family business, made a lot of mistakes, um, kind of popped my head up the other side and thought, oh, bugger, you know, this, I, I think I've got it now. Like I've really got to understand who I'm working with and what works for them, <laughs> which just sounds so simple. But it was in my head it was a huge mind flip from preaching, not preaching, but, you know, kind of imposing my view of what safety was to actually go, no, I'm the last person to know what good looks like in this context. So it's about facilitating safer outcomes with people and and really drastically shifting the dial around this conversation from it being bureaucratic, negative, boring, uninspiring, all the classic stereotypes and going, well, if we actually want to inspire people to do things differently, perhaps we need to support and encourage them. Um, so that's why I'm steadfast on, you know, I don't, I don't talk about incidents because that's fear, fear-based, and I don't talk about what went wrong because 99% of the time things are going well and there's a much greater case study or opportunity to learn from that information and to spread a positive message um, than there is getting, than getting hyper-focused on the minutia of time when things don't go well. Yeah. So, so how do you go about doing that? So, and and tell me how you work with um, workplaces or organisations, or through your 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 talking, your speaking, and facilitating. How do you go about that now? How do you, I suppose, move away from that box ticking um, theory, really theory based? Because I know I've worked in corporate situations where a lot of health and safety is. Um, and OHS and all that, you know, all that sort of stuff is just theory based. And most of the people that designed any of that doesn't haven't even worked in a workplace and understand it. Particularly, like in my field in dairy farming, you know, you know, don't get in the way of an animal. Well, how do you not get in the way of a cow when you're trying to push her up a lane? Yeah, just they not, none of it made practical sense. So, so how have you moved away from that doc, that tick um, box ticking? theory based to to what you deliver now ah oh, well I, I think it's a number of things but I think probably one of the most important things was um for me to just dip my toe in the world of academia and just to understand that actually there is a lot of literature out there in what's called safety science that proves that this box ticking thing is not helpful so um you're having done a lot of things the wrong way in the first instance and learnt from that and then um, having had the opportunity to work with small family businesses who have a sub-zero tolerance for this stuff and then leaning into the literature and just trying and testing a lot of different things, that's probably led me to where I am now. And I think it's worth calling out that the safety profession, as well-intended as a lot of the people are, um, it's a very 
it's a highly unregulated industry, so they don't have to go and lean into this literature. Like it's quite easy to get a cert four out of a Weebix box, say you're a safety professional, and go and push the policy procedure narrative and people come to expect that. Um, but I think if you want results and you want different outcomes, then we have to think differently. Um, so, yeah, so two hats, you know, like I work across the full spectrum of the agriculture ecosystem from small businesses and communities, which is the Plant Seed for Safety brand. Um, which is a different service offering, um, right through to, you know, my other business, which is just me as a as a consultant and a facilitator, which is more at the medium to large end of the scale. And I, I love the diversity that that brings because it allows me to keep my ears to the ground in both regards. And in terms of what the solutions look like for either party, their worlds apart um, because they're obviously at very different points within their safety journey, and they're also just wildly different businesses and different people and all that stuff. So. Um, the, the central message around all the work that I do, though, is just about keeping health and safety in mind in the sexiest, most fun way possible and stepping right away from, from box ticking and compliance and just focusing on bringing people home at the end of each day. Yeah, <clears throat> but obviously there, there's, a, if you like, a not a dark side, but the dark side to the industry, and that is the compliance part. How is that affecting um you know, businesses that you deal with now because I know, you know, some of the compliance stuff is fairly stringent and obviously, um, you know, obviously you don't want to talk too much about the negative side and the accidents, but that can, you know, can be debilitating to a business as well. So um, how do you deal with, with that side of the, with that side of the coin as well? Yeah. So I think the, the one of the myths about safety is that the legislation is you know, super prescriptive and what it says you can and can't do. It's actually very broad and kind of ambiguous. Um, and I think where um, particularly small businesses and big businesses get lost is they, they miss the intent, which is just don't kill someone and do your best to prevent that from happening. And as soon as you focus on that as the goal rather than compliance, which is by definition meeting the requirements of a third party who may or may not ever show up on your doorstep, you shift the conversation from it being about signage and first aid kits and, you know, safety data sheets and policies and procedures, which is all that compliance stuff, to actually this auger could kill someone and everybody knows and understands that. So what are we going to do about it collectively to prevent that from happening? And so the conversation turns from being irrelevant and potentially completely invaluable to, oh, yeah, no, I get that. Actually, you're right. That's a good point. We should start there. And I think if businesses start there, then not only are they meeting the intent of the law, but they're having conversations that will genuinely possibly prevent someone from getting hurt. And that is compliance. So compliance becomes an outcome of that process. And I think my one of my biggest challenges or opportunities is that people are paralysed by the fear of being prosecuted. And unlike big business, we don't have a generous safety department in agriculture to support every single small business on how to do something differently. Um, which is a real challenge. And so normally when I work with small businesses or groups of small businesses, it probably takes a good two or three hours of really working with that group to give them the confidence that there is a way of doing this um, that is not based on fear, that doesn't require a whole stack of paperwork. Um, and actually, if you focus on this stuff, you might actually prevent someone from getting hurt, which is the yeah. whole point. And that's <laughs> interesting. You took that word right out of my mouth because fear as a... <clears throat> As a previous manager of some large um, 
dairy farms like it was always that fearful day or when if um you know work safety you'd turn up or you know to come and do an audit or you know whether it was any sort of audit you had it was always a fear-based thing it wasn't a a proactive thing and um you know it was always all hope i've got all my you know the as we said the the boxes ticked and make sure we get through that process and and really what you said that was the far removed um thought was about the outcome that you were trying to achieve and that's so everyone gets home safely and it was more about making sure the forms were filled in and so yeah that that fear that that was a word that would come sprung straight to my mind i was going to say but you've already beaten me to it so um so with the with the businesses that you work for what are some of the the best pieces of advice you can give them to alleviate that fear and be able to um to implement a a more proactive health and safety program within their business yeah it's really challenging so with small family businesses i think they're so far down that fear rabbit warren that they're a part of in a state of fight or flight and they're overwhelmed so it's really hard you know i could say something now but it's not really gonna it's not gonna alleviate anything we'd really probably have to work together but other than to say you have to make a fundamental decision on what you want to anchor yourself to in terms of a goal. Do you want to be compliant and meet this elusive expectation of someone you may never meet or do you want to focus on just reducing the chance of someone getting seriously hurt and then you're never going to end up in the hot seat anyway? Um, And once you make a clear decision around that, then you just work from there and it becomes a much more empowering, positive, preventative exercise. And then in terms of bigger businesses and stuff, yeah, I mean, that's a very um, it's a very nuanced thing. So safety is it's not just law. It's, as I said, it's psychology, it's sociology, it's, it's, it's science. It's so many different things. Every organisation is different. One thing I would say, though, is that, you know, we have to embrace complexity and that's not something our world currently does particularly well, but risk is subjective and people are subjective. Um, So I think in big business in particular, we have to work really hard to embrace complexity and build trust and collaboration. And then once we're on our pathway to do that, we'll be able to do things like improve safety and start to declutter systems and processes to get rid of all the kind of bureaucratic noise, I suppose, that doesn't add any value. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, um, you know, one of the things I say, like particularly in the mental health space, it's, um, it's really interesting that, you know, a lot of money that could be better directed into services or something like that go into, you know, like you say, like in the health and safety, I suppose, um, space, it's, you know, the, the signs and the pamphlets and the stickers and all that sort of stuff. And really, if you, if you went around and asked that question to, to to someone have you read that they'll say no and um you know basically their induction's just been a few questions that they've answered the right answers to and that's it and it's all done where um actually making it part of a well making it a living and breathing part of your business is um is how i suppose you get that ultimate outcome and everyone goes home safely so that's um yeah very interesting the the work that you're doing um in that space um, just to wrap up, I don't want to take too much more of your time, but I, I I gave you the heads up before we started. I want to lighten that lighten it up a little bit and um, ask you a couple of um, fun questions that I normally ask at the end of every podcast. And um, 
I, I missed out on asking you one, but is there any one particular person? And I probably can nearly guess the answer, but one particular person that that inspires you? Uh, my dad. <laughs> Is that predictable? <laughs> that was predictable. Uh, as soon as I started asking, I knew what your answer was going to be. Yeah. And is there is there a main reason why he inspires you so much? Um. Look, I think. Look, he's just got this capacity to bounce back. Like the man has had, you know, cats have nine lives. This. Bugger has had like fifty thousand million, and so I don't know. He's he's very um, optimistic despite incredible odds, and he, you know, as much as his resilience, if I could use that word, which is a double-edged sword, I think in some regards, you know, like his toughest nails mentality, while it's been part of his undoing, I think it's part of his success as well in that he's still around. Um, so. Yeah, and I, you know, he's he's my sounding board for everything. So um, I'm very, very fortunate to have him as a dad and as a as a best mate and a mentor, really. No, oh, great answer. Mm-hmm. Um, so your favourite book, have you got a favourite book that, um, whether it's fiction or non-fiction, um, a favourite book that you like reading or are you a reader, I suppose, in, in, to mm-hmm. ask that question first? Yeah, I am. Um, only more recently, like in the last 12 months, because it's so damn good for my brain. Who knew? Um, so read a combination of nonfiction and fiction. And probably one of my favourite books of all time is Jessica by Bryce Courtney. Yep. Mm, though I haven't read and it what, And why Why did you like that book? Uh, because it transported me back to my youth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good answer, Put, that's a, and that's what a, a good book will do. Um, what about favourite music? What are you into? Country. Country music? <laughs> Anyone in particular? Oh, look, I'd give my right arm to go and see Luke Coombs play, but unfortunately I don't have a ticket. He's flavour of the month at the moment, but Casey can't go past Casey Chambers. Casey Chambers? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, she's she's pretty good. I've been lucky enough to see her a couple of times. Um, yeah, she's good. and. What about a favourite quote? Have you got a favourite quote that you'd like to share with the listeners? I do, uh, and there's an abridged version which I don't have in front of me, but the quote is known as The Man or Woman in the Arena by Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah. Are you familiar with it? Yeah, it's one of my favourites. It's a, it's, is it? It's a, do you know yeah. it off the top of your head? I don't know it off the top of my head, but basically it's just, um, yeah, it's no use pointing fingers at someone if you're not prepared to be in the arena yourself, basically, in, uh, to summarise it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, no, that's, um, yeah, for something that was written so long ago, it's uh, it's very, it resonates a fair bit. And um, sometimes when I'm having a, a bit of a crappy day, I always have a bit of a read of that one because it's, um, you know, if I... At least I'm in the arena, and I'm, you know, it might be the best day that I'm that I've ever had, but I'm still I'm still in there kicking, and it was something that I used to pull out a fair bit during COVID as well, um, because I was still kind of in the arena, but you know, um, some of the days weren't the best days going around. Um, to finish off with, and I did pose this question to you before, so I've given you plenty of time to think about it. So, if you could have a dinner party or a barbie or whatever. Um, of, of your choice and you could invite five people um, mm. they're not 
um, and we're excluding family here, five people that you could invite um, that you would think would be um, good guests at this um, this dinner, who would they be? I would. Uh, I'd grab my grandmother, my dad's mum. Yep. Um, because she is, I didn't get the opportunity to get to know her as, a, as an adult and I would just love to dovetail into all her stuff. This is a very strange one. Don't judge me, but Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> did you hear that? <laughs> you didn't put your hand over your mouth quick. Because <laughs> he's a total weirdo, right? And there's something about being an empath, and um, you know, like, and the ju- and the, the, the just the strangeness of like a psychopath. Like, I just find that so fascinating, right? But I don't know. We'd probably have to keep him. Up in a so, so I better <laughs> ask then before you um, announce the next three. What are you serving? Yeah. What are you going to serve at this dinner? Because he might, <laughs> <laughs> he might only right. eat one. I know no, that's right. Um, <laughs> next one, <laughs> next one would probably be. Oh, I, can, I don't know if this is reverse sexism, but I, Hugh Jackman. I think he's just a beautiful man. Yeah. Like I think it would be great to have him. Um, Probably my son, a bit older, just to have that youthful diversity in perspective. Um, and probably I'm really split on this one. There's two women in the rural sphere that I absolutely, I just think are incredible, and they are Kath Marriott and Shanna Wan. Yep. And they are just total disruptors and they are so unapologetically um, authentic and I just they inspire me every day. So they'd, they'd be one of the other ones, I think. Oh, there you go. Very good. That's they're good answers. And yeah, nothing wrong with Hugh Jackman. I'd I'd probably invite him and yeah, long to my dinner party too. Handsome, handsome human being. Isn't it? Isn't he? And a nice no, guy. All right, nice guy. Well, that's what I always. If someone asked me a question once, if if you could be somebody. Um, who yeah. would you be? And I said, well, I can't be one person. I'd like to be a combination of two, and that would be Dave Grohl and Hugh Jackman combined together. <laughs> oh, nice, mate. Well, I wish I knew who Dave Grohl was, but that's okay. He's the, oh. he's the lead singer of the Foo Fighters. So, Oh, wow. Yeah, I should know that. Yep. Yeah, awesome. so like a charismatic front man and then yeah, both good humans and very talented and all the rest of it and – and yeah, that would be the combination who I'd I'd like to be. Well, so look, thanks very much for joining me today, um, Alex. It's been a, a pleasure and a, a bit of a laugh, so that's been good. And you've shed a different light, I suppose, on health and safety. So um, hopefully, reducing some of the the fear of the people that are listening out there, and um, hopefully, they can take a different perspective on health and safety and make sure. Everyone is getting home safely. So if anyone wants to get in contact with you, how's the best way to do that? Uh, probably to, to shoot me an email. So it's just Alex. Yep. And you know, I can jump on a website. You've got a website. Um, yes. I'll put those in the show notes. But um, thanks very much for, for joining me today and um, look forward to catching up with you somewhere down the track. Beautiful. Thank you so much for having me, Warren. It was awesome. No worries. Bye for now. Cheers. 
Thanks for joining me on today's podcast and I appreciate any feedback and I look forward to you joining me on the next episode of the Beyond the Back Paddock podcast.